welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumlupstay Sequetman territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequetman-Ulu. And today's text, Better Late Than Ever, is set primarily right in downtown New York on Broadway, the traditional home of the Muncie Lenape peoples. Mm-hmm. Also, did you say better late than never when you opened this? Oh, probably. Did I? (laughs) Do you want me to do that again? No, because I feel like (laughs) it's a bit of a problem with this particular title. I said it so many times in my head when I was writing out notes for this episode. I think it's a clever title because it's a play, but also it doesn't mean anything. And I find it very difficult to distinguish. Yeah, I agree completely. I find it a very distracting title for that reason. Because yes, normally when a title is a pun, the pun is also a metaphor. And mm. I that's not what's happening here, because if anything, this is a very early debut on Broadway for our right. protagonist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like this is Ultimate Fantasyville. And yeah, folks, I mean, we should clarify that we are going into this having quite enjoyed the book and then having about a 10-minute discussion about our cynicism about the film. So I'm very interested to see how our listeners respond to this particular combination because I don't know if you and I are out in the weeds, Brenna. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to talking about the disappointment I felt with the film. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to be like a trash fest because I don't think it deserves no. a trash fest by mm-hmm. any stretch of the imagination. But I do think that it's a fascinating dynamic when we have the same author yep. who is acting as a screenwriter who seems nevertheless to have completely missed the point of his own book. That's weird. Yeah. Oh, it is <laughs> baffling. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess we should start with a plot synopsis, right? Absolutely. Okay, so what is Better Nate Than Ever about? Right, I'm going to say that wrong a lot. So Better Nate Than Ever uh, is the first book in a trilogy by Tim Fetterly. And it is a novel for middle graders, but uh, it's still quite enjoyable, I think, for a YA audience. Mm -hmm. It definitely is young, but it's action-packed and playful, and I just found it to be quite a joy to read. Absolutely. (laughs) It focuses on our central protagonist, the 13-year-old Nate. Nate doesn't quite fit in to his home in suburban Pennsylvania. He is surrounded by people who care about, you know, sports and really traditional representations of masculinity and his dad is like a dude's dude and so is his older brother anthony who's like a sports star and Mm -hmm. even his mom is kind of like maybe you could take a break from being yourself for a bit it feels like a lot (laughs) yeah and unfortunately nate's situation is that he is absolutely head over heels in love with musicals and broadway and he has a best friend named libby who indulges him in this which is a nice reprieve because he has someone to confide in but also it really drives a wedge between the rest of his family who just look at him like he's a bit of an odd duck and there's definitely a sense of like why aren't you even trying to fit yes in? yeah and libby herself uh, his friend lives down the street they're 
very close. And it's an important relationship for Libby, too, because Libby's mom has cancer. She's going mm-hmm. through cancer treatments again. Um, and there's a lot of, like, day-to-day trauma in Libby's life. So for her... Yes escaping into musicals and particularly escaping into sort of a directorial role where she bosses Nate around and tries mm-hmm. to get him to be the best performer he can be, that's a really important escape for her too. And so this is yes. what bonds the two of them together. Mm-hmm. Nate is slowly and quietly over the course of the novel sort of understanding his queerness in a way that is perfectly age appropriate for 13 but also very subtle it's not there's no big coming out moment Mm -mm. he's just slowly kind of recognizing that this fish out of water feeling that he has in rural pennsylvania doesn't extend to his foray into new york city which is exactly sort of the central focus of the book Mm -hmm. libby finds out about E.T., the musical, (laughs) it's like a terrible idea, Um, being cast on Broadway. And she convinces Nate that he should go and audition. And so he sneaks away from home. He takes a nighttime bus into the city all by himself. And he he gets himself in front of the casting directors for E.T., the musical. Along the way, he reconnects with a long-lost aunt. He meets other queer people who seem to be living really happy and complete lives in a way he didn't necessarily imagine as possible for himself. And maybe he gets cast in a musical? The book ends (laughs) on a cliffhanger. But that's basically the story. Yeah. In some ways, it's so simple. Like, there isn't a plot point that is going to surprise any readers who have experienced middle grade or YA fiction before. And to a certain extent, I feel like Federley capitalizes on that. Like, he's not trying to shock or surprise us. He's actually just trying to tell this really heartwarming story that dances around Nate's kind of coming of age slash coming of realization. And it happens to be set among this backdrop of a larger-than-life fantasy story where a 13-year-old child runs away to New York and doesn't get mugged or abducted or anything terrible. (laughs) I would have loved this book when I was, like, 11. I would have just absolutely gobbled up the idea that you could escape your very normal, staid, average life and just debut (laughs) to -hmm. New York. And... Joe and I were talking off air. There's something really fun about the kind of conceit that happens in adventure-based middle grade stories in particular, which is that Mm -hmm. the scenario is wildly dangerous, but at no point do you feel that Nate is going to be murdered. Like, at no point. Mm -hmm. It's not trading in peril. It's all about the sort of adventure aspect. And that is good fun. It's very fun to read. It is. One of the things I ended up really appreciating about that is that because Nate is so naive and almost idealistic, he's got these rose-colored glasses about what New York could offer him, right? Because he is a tourist through and through. Every little thing about New York delights him, down to like this really crappy sort of garbage clothing emporium where he has to keep going to buy new clothes and everything is like a dollar. And he's just absolutely over the moon at the possibilities of being able to completely revamp yourself in a new costume. And that kind of joyful exuberance is the kind of thing that we only see in children who haven't learned a hard lesson about what the real world is like. And while I do think that Nate ends up learning some of that about 
disappointment and adult relationships, you know, the central focus between his aunt Heidi and his mom is something that he has to really come to process over the course of the novel. But for the most part, it's like this picture of New York as this fantasy, which is really exciting because I think sometimes even adults are guilty of painting the city in that color. Mm-hmm. Totally. It it feels magical, right? Like there's a reason why people want to spend Christmas in mm-hmm. New York City, right? There's something really special about it. And then I think what happens for most adults is you get there and like parts of it are amazing. Yeah. And then like they charge you $28 for a gin and tonic. Not that that's from <laughs> personal experience or anything. And you're like, huh, <laughs> I have some yeah. feelings about what's happening right now. I love a $400 a night <laughs> hotel room. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> And of course, the latter never happens to Nate, really, right? Mm -hmm. Because he is in so many ways protected. Something I think the book does well is sets him up for perilous adventure that is Mm -hmm. ultimately, you know, his aunt steps in often, um, or he seeks out his aunt. And there's this sort of, I don't know, kind of person who is at two arms lengths who will make sure he doesn't actually sleep on the street, Mm -hmm. but isn't always there. I think the right. mistake the film makes, and we'll we'll get there, but the film makes sure there is always someone there. And so yeah. the kind of adventure, excitement, Nate on his own in the city is really quite truncated in the film version, when I think it's one of the most magical things about the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like we, we repeatedly said, there's no feeling of danger that Nate is going to get himself into true trouble. And yet... As an adult reader, you were keenly aware of the fact that this is an unaccompanied minor in a large and dangerous city. So you don't think the book is going to go there, but there always is that idea in the back of your mind. So it feels like the book has genuine stakes. Like every bad thing that happens to Nate feels like it could be on the precipice of a lifetime movie in the making if it's not careful. And I think Federley is really good at negotiating and like navigating that kind of high stakes danger while also making this super cute and adorable. And it is adorable. It's a really pleasurable read. Like, it's not a hard read. It's not Mm -mm. a slow read. Mm -mm. Um, It is fun and delightful. And I think that one of my favorite things about it as a book is that sense of magic and possibility is really quite infectious. Like, it's hard not to smile while you read this book. Yeah, and I think part of that has to do with Nate's um, not always successful audition process. <laughs> He's very much a theater kid, but when he gets to New York, he realizes that he doesn't actually know the ins and outs of Broadway in the way that the kind of locals do. The people who have been on the ground, who've got their helicopter parents with their headshots ready to go, who have already done performances on the big stage. You know, Nate's biggest claim to fame is performing in the chorus of his middle grade school or doing performances in Libby's basement. So it just sets him up as an even greater underdog than we realize. And there's a lot of fun to be had with the kind of mean-spiritedness in a very middle-grade fashion of his interactions with the big city folks. Yes, who, of course, he slowly but surely wins over, right? Mm -hmm. Like, a critical part of this kind of narrative is that the cynical big city people don't make Nate cynical. Instead, Nate makes them believers in the possibility Mm -hmm. of... Nate-ness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think he just, he brings something unexpected, like a kind of 
joie de vivre that a lot of the others have missed because this is just another audition. This is just another Broadway show. And Nate comes in there and wows them because he doesn't understand the rules. So he brings something new to the table every single time. And as a reader, it's really fun to watch him misunderstand what we already know so he goes in there and he thinks oh i'm gonna do this big thing that's gonna wow this casting group so he gets a callback at one point where he has to memorize a bunch of lines and then he's gonna do them and it could be so cringy because he ends up doing all of the parts himself Mm -hmm. not realizing that there's a line reader whose job it is to play the other parts And it could be so bad, but it ends up being so fun because you get swept up in this like Tasmanian devil performance that he's putting on. You're just like, oh my gosh, this kid. That's exactly it. I love the word Tasmanian devil there because you just sort of, I don't know, you kind of lean into it as Mm -hmm. you realize that he is absolutely... He's going for it. <laughs> what must it look like, right? And oh, instead, I, that was really the scene special. I was most curious to see how they were going to adapt in the film because it is such a whirlwind in the book. Like that scene is such a fun standout. One of the nice things about it is that Federley does an excellent job of Nate's realizations always coming after the readers. And so, mm. you know, even if you've never been to an audition, even if you know, have no sense of what that would look like, right. it dawns on you that something is not right about what Nate is doing before mm-hmm. it dawns on Nate. And so you get this moment of feeling like intense sympathy for him. Yes. That's very effective in terms of just drawing you in and making you really care about this kid. Who, I yes. mean, this kid could be really annoying. And yes. he somehow isn't in, in the book. i like that addition at the end brenna (laughs) no you're absolutely right he's so cheerworthy especially when you start to unpack some of the relationships that he has like i don't think even nate himself has realized how he feels so closed in at home and part of the reason that his trip to new york works is because it is both his big adventure but it's also kind of his big escape to realize oh, the way that people treat me at home when they bully me at school or when my family doesn't accept me, it doesn't always have to be like that. And I I will say that I think as a queer reader, there's a couple of scenes that really ended up affecting me and maybe differently than other readers. But there's a moment where he's trying to find his Aunt Heidi's workplace. She works at a really terrible sounding oyster bar. (laughs) Ah, shucks. Ah, shucks. Fantastic. (laughs) So he's walking down the street and he sees this person who we immediately understand to be gay. And this person is dancing. And then he sees someone coming at this person and he fears for them. He fears for their Mm -hmm. safety because he thinks this other person, this man, is going to hit them. And then the two men end up kissing just as the door closes. So it's like this entry into an adult world that Nate has never really understood or even considered. And I don't even think he understands what he saw, except for the fact that it's two people doing something he didn't think was possible and looking happy and unthreatened. It's just a really great scene. And then it gets unpacked further with Aunt Heidi's roommate, whose Mm -hmm. real name we never learn because Nate doesn't like it. (laughs) But he ends up (laughs) just being this. (laughs) I love it. It's, It's so extra. But Nate ends up developing this rapport with this absolutely great guy. And he thinks, 
you're so fantastic. Why aren't you dating my Aunt Heidi? And then it just kind of comes out over a brunch that, you know, he goes, oh, well, I date men. And that's the closest that the book gets to saying gay, doesn't say queer, but the implications are so clear and obvious that it doesn't, it almost doesn't need to be said. And I think that those are really special moments, particularly if there are young readers who are looking at this, right? It's such an easy way to enter into this more adult conversation about sexuality. That relationship between Nate and his aunt's roommate is so touching, important, because mm-hmm. what you really see is, I mean, really what Nate is discovering on this trip more than anything else, more than how to go through an audition, he's discovering <laughs> what it means to have a found family. Right. And he already knew, right? Because Libby is his found family. but. Yes. What he's realizing is that there can be more than one person who understands you, like, in the Mm -hmm. world. And he sees the relationship that his aunt and her roommate share, which is, it's so important, right? That that this woman who's been cast out from her family um, has found someone who she is building a life with, who she has happiness with and comfort. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be exclusively romantic partnerships, right? It's not that... It's not that Nate has to live his life without a brother who understands him or parents who understand him until one day he maybe gets a boyfriend. It's like, no, you Mm -hmm. can actually build this whole network of people who love who you are. And it's, you can see him blossom after that discovery. It's, I think Mm -hmm. it's my favorite thing in the book. Well, and, and it's really important for him in terms of understanding his relationship with his aunt and what has happened between his mom and his aunt, because there's this whole kind of traumatic backstory about why Aunt Heidi has not been in his life. And it gets really dialed back in the film, like to the mm-hmm. point of frustrating simplicity. But in the book, it's because Aunt Heidi ended up driving a wedge between... Nate's mom and their parents and then the parents went off and died Mm -hmm. and there was no opportunity for reconciliation and it doesn't fit as well into this narrative about oh I'm a person who loves theater and I needed to pursue it and that's my passion which is the decision that the film ultimately makes but I think that it's actually more telling because it doesn't try to suggest that everything is going to be tied up in a very simple way Mm -hmm. like Sibling dynamics are complicated, and while Aunt Heidi's relationship with Nate's mom is very different from Nate's relationship with Anthony, it's still a good barometer to segue into that found family, into the sort of complicated ways that we actually negotiate familial relationships. Like, I think it's just, it's more challenging because it doesn't fit nicely into this very simple puzzle, right? Mm -hmm. And... Honestly, the film just unpacks all of that and (laughs) renders it like a single straight line of a narrative. And I don't know, I kind of, do you want to transition over so we can start getting into this? I do, yeah, because I think we need to. Every single complicated or interesting choice the book makes, uh, the film simplifies. And I found it an extremely frustrating experience to watch. So yeah, let's get into it. Bro, it's like 7 a.m. Today's the day, Mom. They're posting the cast list for the school play today. Get it? Like it's a curtain? Tough crowd. 
I've got some breaking news. It's an open audition. They're making Lilo and Stitch a Broadway musical. Where would we even sleep? What about your aunt? The Broadway actress. You are the only toddler whose first word was me. Let's cast a musical. Does anyone have a special skill they'd like to demonstrate? I can do fiddler on the roof style knee crawls. This I have to see. Mazel tov! <gasps> oh my gosh, my pants. Does anybody have any extra shorts? <clears throat> I'll make you proud of me. Okay, I Nate. Swear. That's all we're gonna need. Forget New York. I'm just trying to survive seventh grade. I love that you're still I'm acting. You remind me of, like, me. You're literally all I want to be when I grow up. Three weeks on Broadway, an apartment in New York. Queens, but... I'm about to go out. You're a hundred times funnier and quicker than I am. Don't you look like the kid that went viral on TikTok? I didn't know you could do all that. Find your light. I'm theatrical. Hold up just a second. Sorry, I thought we were alone. That is so weird. We know. I'm about to go out. Okay, so the film is from this year. It just came out uh, at the beginning of April on Disney Plus. And the reason that I say where it was released to is, I think, very important in the mm -hmm. discussion that we're about to have. So this was uh, adapted and also directed by Tim Federley himself, and he was on the record as saying he wanted to make changes to his original source material when he adapted the film, and principally that was to expand the roles of Libby as well as Anthony, who is Nate's older brother. Boo. <sighs> yeah. Boo. Okay. So quickly, a rundown <laughs> of the cast. We have newcomer Ruby Wood as Nate. We have a high school musical, the musical, the series, Joshua Bassett as Anthony. Which we should note, Tim Federley is the head writer on High School Musical, the musical, the series. Okay. Hmm. Another piece <laughs> falls into that particular puzzle then, doesn't it? <laughs> We have Aria Brooks as Libby, Lisa Kudrow as Aunt Heidi, and then Norbert Leo Butts as Rex, Nate's father, and Michelle Federer as Sherry, his mother. So we've kind of alluded that there are some fairly significant changes in the film. And maybe let's start with the sort of softball one, Brenna. So in the film, Nate does not travel to New York alone. He goes with Libby. It was the first choice that I knew was incorrect. <laughs> and it all unfurled from there. Yes. So Libby goes with Nate to New York on the bus. And in fact, she does all the planning. Mm -hmm. In the film version, Libby is a rich kid whose parents are divorced, but there's no sort of tragic backstory there. Mm -hmm. And Libby just pays their way, which is a huge departure from what happens in the book where Nate is constantly broke running out of money yeah yeah because he thinks that everything like the return ticket is the cost of the one-way ticket and he he runs around with like a baggie full of change mm -hmm. so that's the first thing that really changes the stakes because now nate is not alone and mm -hmm. now nate doesn't have any financial pressures and those two things really change the vibe of the adventure in that it's not nearly so much of an adventure anymore yeah, and I can sort of understand it from a believability perspective, because mm -hmm. it would be hard to go ahead with, oh, here's this 13-year-old child running around New York, and everything works out perfectly for him. But also, 
that's literally what the book is. And I don't <laughs> think that the two mediums, like, I, I don't mean to sound facetious, but like, no, part of the reason it works in the book is because you just accept it and you move on. And it's I don't fantasy. think that the mediums are that different that you couldn't have pulled it off visually. No, you totally could have. And it's a desire to give Libby a larger role. But of course, then we have this very awkward scene because we need to get Nate by himself for some of the Mm -hmm. conflict to happen. And so we have to weirdly write Libby out in a way that didn't make any sense. Like all of a sudden she needs to get home. Like she had Mm -hmm. never thought about that before. It's a very strange scene and it's unhelpful. (laughs) Yeah. It also moves a significant event from the book. So there's a near kiss between the two of them because we learned that Libby has a crush on Nate Mm -hmm. And that's part of the reason why she wants to help him so badly is because she cares for him in a romantic sense. But that kind of gets done away with very early on in the book. It's like, oh, right. Okay, we'll talk about this later. And then, of course, by the end of the book, they realize that that kind of relationship isn't going to happen. In the course of the film, that's actually the driving wedge when Libby says, Mm -hmm. okay, we need to go home. My parents are expecting me. They get on the bus and then he gets the call back and he goes, I'm going to leave. And then that's when the sort of romantic entanglement issue happens. And we get this really frustratingly quippy line from some random old woman who's like, oh, sit down, little girl. I'll explain it to you on the way back to Pennsylvania. And you're just like... Oh, cool. Because that was the other thing where you're like, I can see the writing on the wall. We're not going to talk about the elephant in the room. And she also says something along the lines of like, oh, honey, I had a friend like that too. And I married him. It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) that kind of brings us into, I think, the meat of this discussion, which is basically better Nathan ever is the living embodiment of Disney's current political and sociocultural woes, which is, this is a movie that will not say gay, and frankly doesn't even seem to want to address it. It's weird because it's a classic example of what we see in a lot of Disney these days, which is, Mm -hmm. we want all the credit for making quote-unquote inclusive art, right? but we don't want any of the responsibility of addressing the real-life circumstances of these characters and so we get this played for laughs bit on the bus which basically is just created to write out the romance story between nate and libby it has nothing to do with either of them as people or Mm -hmm. the ramifications for their friendship and we lose the aunt's roommate character who is actually sort of the embodiment of like queer joy (laughs) like Mm -hmm, the the mm -hmm. opportunities that are available to nate in the future those are completely absent from the film yeah it's very very frustrating particularly yeah we have this political moment where you know disney wants credit for you know the fact that there's going to be what like a fleeting queer backstory in the new buzz lightyear movie but they don't want to have to actually have queer characters be whole human beings Mm -hmm. and it's a fascinating problem that like i i texted joe that this feels like a movie from 2004 because it feels like the way queerness was addressed in the original high school musical Mm. which also wasn't good right it was like it's played (laughs) for laughs and there's this funny dynamic between sharpay and what's his face 
um, because she clearly is <laughs> in love with him. You can never him. remember his name. <laughs> I can never remember his name. But that's what it like. That's the kind of character that he's created to be in that series, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in two thousand and four, it was annoying. I think in twenty twenty two, it's unforgivable that this is still where we are. Yeah, and I mean, I can't miss up the opportunity to acknowledge the real world elephant in the room, which Mm -hmm. is that Disney is saying one thing and then literally giving millions of dollars to conservatives in red states that are publicly making it illegal to talk about queerness and gay issues. And so they're trying to reap the financial benefits of having inclusive text, quote unquote, and, you know, loudly talking about how they're debuting their first ever queer character in somehow six different properties, despite the <laughs> fact that they said it last year. And yet, yeah. so like as a queer person, it's really offensive to the point of like, how how can we even publicly support this company and these texts mm-hmm. at this point? But then you think, okay, well, they're still doing work here. Like, Tim Federley is a gay man, and he has a relationship with Disney. As you said, he's involved with High School Musical, the musical, the series. This is a queer text, you know? We're not saying gay in the book, but it's pretty darn obvious. And it's a Stonewall Award winner. Right. It's a Lambda Literary Award winner as well. The book has been significant for its role, particularly middle grade is a really touchy area for school (laughs) libraries and teachers we'll talk about that next week (laughs) so having a positive queer story that has had extremely good outreach into those environments Mm -hmm. that's really important so like i don't want to come across as being like tim federley is a hack because i don't think he is a hack Mm -mm. honestly what it feels like is Disney got their fingers into Mm -hmm. this, right? So one of the small but I think very telling changes is that all of a sudden we're not making an E.T. musical. We're making Lilo and Stitch the musical. And (sighs) you can find interviews with Federley where he says, oh, well, it made more sense because I'm making this for Disney. So why wouldn't I change it to a Disney property? And I'm like, no, what you're telling me is that there were people looking at this and saying, well, hey, since you're working with us, can you please goose up our intellectual property? But mm-hmm. also, can you dial down the queerness because that makes us uncomfortable and we need to be able to sell this to families who are conservative? It's a disservice, too, to the story itself. Like, yes. What a waste of Lisa Kudrow. Can we say that? Oh, my God. And what did she do to this queer, I presume, hair or makeup person who makes her look like absolute garbage throughout this entire movie? (laughs) It's not a good haircut. It's really not a good haircut. (laughs) It's super bad. No, and that's the surprising thing, right? Like, we've goosed up the roles of Libby, which I think is great because Aria Brooks is actually the best thing about this whole movie. Agreed. But then we've also goosed up the role of Anthony, who, I'm sorry, Joshua Bassett is completely miscast in this role, and he is terrible in this movie. Uh, There could not be a more phoned-in performance, and I think that, you know, we were were speculating off-air about things like contractual obligations, like Mm. how many Disney pictures does Joshua Bassett have to make before he gets set free. That's what it feels (laughs) like, right? Like, yeah. 
Joshua Bassett was put in High School Musical to try to be the next Zac Efron. Right. Zac Efron's whole thing was that, like, look, he can play the jock, but he can also play the sensitive guy. Mm-hmm. That's not Joshua Bassett. No. He's not a jock. At no. All. <laughs> he's so unbelievable in the role. Yeah, he's supposed to be like this superstar athlete who also, even though we goose up his role, we also minimize any nuance in his character, right? Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that's happening over the course of the book that Nate is not aware of is that Anthony doesn't think he wants to be so much exclusively the jock anymore and he's kind of relieved Mm -hmm. when he gets injured and like there's this whole backstory there that we don't really get in the film we just get more joshua bassett looking (laughs) dopey at us for for more of the film and i think tragically we lose any sense that lisa kudrow's character as aunt heidi Mm -hmm. is happy in her life and Heidi is a very interesting character in the book because she has some pretty significant regrets about her family Mm -hmm. but she also has people who she loves and a community around her we don't see any of that in the film no at all no and it's sad yeah the character has been reduced to such simple strokes and I feel like the film did a great thing when we cast Lisa Kudrow because Lisa Kudrow brings goodwill with her, mm-hmm. right? Like and we energy. cheer for Huge Lisa Kudrow. Energy. Yeah, yeah. So when she's on screen, you're like, yes, I love all of this. But then you realize, oh, I'm actually rooting for Lisa Kudrow and I don't know who Aunt Heidi is, except for she's some semi-failed actress who's working as a cater waiter. And even the change in jobs doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense to me because Mm -hmm. having her as a cater waiter doesn't make it more interesting. It doesn't give the character anything new to play off of. It actually feels more stereotypical than having her work at a high-end an oyster bar where she has a community and a family right mm-hmm. like that's by making her a cater waiter you strip any sort of community context away from her there's not a place that she goes every day there's not like a kind of reliable sense of rhythm to her life mm-hmm. and instead you just get this shot of lisa kudrow sitting up in bed after nate has fallen asleep in this apartment that is styled to be so dingy right one of the things that's lovely in the book is when (laughs) nate sees this apartment in queens and he sees it with absolute stars in his eyes right yeah and and it's clearly a very tiny place that's kind of garbaggio yeah exactly but in the film version we don't even get like the paint is peeling off the window frames Mm -mm. and like she's got sort of this clapped out old piece of furniture bed that she's sitting up in with like a whole bunch of old quilts on top of her and there's just something very like And this is the spinster. Everybody feels sorry for the spinster character now. And I was like, oh. Sure. Except that that space is massive and I would live there in a freaking heartbeat. (laughs) The windows. The windows alone. (laughs) Honestly, just almost every little creative decision about the film feels wrong to the point where i had to double check that he didn't have a double who inadvertently (laughs) adapted this without reading the same person's source material this film was actually made by tim fetterly's evil twin yeah like there's an accent it's tim (laughs) fetterly here's the thing i will say I watched this with my husband, Brian, and without any of the book context, he thought that the movie was cute and that the kid was occasionally annoying and twee. 
So part of this, I think, is that if you haven't read this as an adaptation and you just watch it as a movie, you might say, yeah, this is cute. It's for tweens. That's fine. But knowing what was lost in the adaptation, it honestly, it made me frustrated at first. And then I got angry. And then I was just like, you know what? After I'm done having this conversation with Brenna, I don't ever want to think about this again. I would happily reread this book. I would read the other books in this series. I would totally but as a film series. property, I was like, well, you had that one good musical number at the beginning, and then you drop that ball too, and I'm done with you. Can we talk about my least favorite part of the film? <laughs> and then I promise we can we can let this go. Okay. My least favorite part of the film is when Nate becomes a TikTok star. Oh my gosh. How do so... we make it relevant and contemporary, Brenna? <laughs> So when Nate is looking for his aunt in the film version, he stumbles upon some street performers. Now, Mm -hmm. in the book, Nate hears street performers and is like, wow, this -hmm. is so cool. This city pulses with music. Yes. Neato. In the film version, he begins to sing alongside the street performers who -hmm. then get like really into this kid like crashing their party basically and Uh then he starts taking requests from the audience and then people of course are videotaping him videotaping oh my god i'm so old (laughs) (laughs) people of course are recording him and uploading him to tiktok and this ends up being the thread by which the rest of the family finds out what's going on right it's extremely irritating to me because the film takes away so much of what makes it an engaging, engrossing fantasy story, as we've already talked about, right? By lowering the stakes and making it so Nate does very little on his own. Mm-hmm. But then it asks us to believe this scene. And I yep. find that frustrating. Like if you're going to use up some goodwill and some willing suspension of disbelief capital here, why mm-hmm. are you using it on this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I've I've had a conversation with you before about why you should watch Elizabeth Shue and Adventures in Babysitting, which literally gets name dropped in this movie, Brenna. I was like, Joe is totally going to text me when he gets to this part of the movie. (laughs) And I did. (laughs) But I feel like that's what Tim Federley and Disney think they're doing here, right? It's, oh, we don't need to give this story a sense of stakes or scope. You know, let's lean into the emotional manipulation and give Nate a series of fun, zany adventures. Like, hey, wouldn't it be fun if Nate became a TikTok star by basically taking over these hardworking musicians who are just out there trying to make a living? Spoiler alert, not fun. Not fun. (laughs) I mean, sure, some of this kind of lands, right? Like there's a sweetness when Nate realizes that when his brother tells him he's not embarrassed in the climax, the emotional climax of the film, he finds the power to nail his audition. So he gets the role of Stitch in Lilo and Stitch, the musical. He gets and, you know, it's fine. two matinee performances as Stitch. And he's the understudy. Yeah. And he's the understudy. But yeah, no cliffhanger, incidentally. <laughs> like none. No, no. I mean, I don't know that the book is that much of a cliffhanger either, but <laughs> there's just... There's something about the film that doesn't trust us. Mm-hmm. So it takes away all of the risk, all of the complexity. It really just dials everything down to the kind of simplest, least meaningful way of addressing anything at all. And then says, well, let's at least have some fun 
with like yuck yuck kind of joke moments and then wrap it up with a big foregone conclusion finale like okay movie but also i'm not gonna praise you for doing something exciting and adventurous because this is paint by numbers it really is and it feels so i don't know i guess it's predictable but not in a satisfying way like Mm -hmm. these films are by design predictable yeah. that's what makes them cozy comforting viewing but absolutely mm-hmm. isn't and i think it's just because of the constellation of choices that get made here i feel manipulated from beginning to end of the mm-hmm. film but in a and bad so, way in a bad way yeah not in a satisfying way Mm-mm. yeah um i'm gonna say honestly this one we've had our kind of like mix of ups and downs like i feel like we've had a couple of good movie adaptations with questionable books we'll have another couple coming up in the future but this one was just that stark reminder of oh sometimes a book can be so magical Mm -hmm. and then something just absolutely gets lost in the adaptation process and we get we get these soulless hollowed out adaptations it's like sure give us a giant musical number of on broadway and then just absolutely falter off a cliff for the rest of the movie. <laughs> I did have high hopes from that opening number, I gotta say. Honestly, if the whole movie had have done fantasy sequences, mm-hmm. I would have forgiven it for a lot of other things. Me too. Overall, boo on this movie, don't watch it. Yeah, don't bother. But read the book and buy the book for middle graders in your life. I think it's a good one for them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, why don't we do some YA bingo with this? Okay. Bingo! Not a good bingo. What have you got? All right. Musicality, obviously. Naturally. The montage, which I think, interestingly, the book might be better at making you imagine montages than the film (laughs) executes on them. (laughs) Yeah, entirely possible. Yeah. Um, I think the film is trying to stunt cast by including Joshua Bassett and Lisa Kudrow, and I think... Mm-hmm. Joshua Bassett is is no stunt I want to watch, and Lisa Kudrow is wasted. <laughs> Fair, but I will still give you the stunt casting bonus. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, I guess the whole thing is a road trip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we have an inclusion flip in the character of Libby in the casting of the film. Correct, yeah, because you sort of default presume that she is white because we're not told otherwise. And then, yeah, Aria Brooks is... Honestly, I I would say... It's so disappointing to me that Aria Brooks, she does get more to do as Libby in the film, but it's also nothing that's interesting. Mm -hmm. But I think that that girl is a star and I would happily watch her in her own sort of musical adventure sequence kind of fun thing. Yeah, I would absolutely watch a Disney film with her at the helm for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay, I have borrowed time because we are living on the clock in this book and less so in the film. Mm-hmm. That's true. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, the film tries to sort of gin that up with the TikTok thing that the parents mm-hmm. keep almost seeing, but then not seeing. But it's much less effective than the fact that time is simply passing and a child is not at home <laughs> in mm-hmm. the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we do have queer secondary character for Heidi's unnamed roommate in the right. book. And then, of course, we have good friendship between Libby and Nate, specifically in the book. Mm-hmm. I believe it in the film. But the emotional manipulation is weird on this one. And I do think that Libby misses something, too, by not having 
her mother. Like, you could argue mm-hmm. that it's manipulative in the book by giving her a sick mother. And yeah, I'm not going to argue that. But also the moment where Nate asks to speak to her mom and talks about how mm. good Libby is. Oh, I welled up. It pulls mm-hmm. at the heartstrings. It's such a tender, small moment. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, I don't know that I have too much more. I mean, there's a lot of kind of quote-unquote perfect dates in like the nice things that happen to Nate that end up working in his favor, but I'm not sure if they're like a date date. I think the thing I would give perfect date to is in the book, we haven't talked about this at all, but Nate's mother actually shows up drunk. Yeah. To pick him up from Aunt Heidi's and they have a sort of come to Jesus kind of fight. And Aunt Heidi's roommate takes Nate out for brunch to mm-hmm. kind of like just get them out of the house. And oh. Nate's like, you can get waffles anytime you want. <laughs> New York's amazing. Um, and I think that's a perfect date. Okay. I like that. I like that. Yeah. So I guess the only other one that I would give, and you can fight me on this, is that Honestly, I'm going to say, because I would absolutely live in Aunt Heidi's uh, apartment in the film, it is ginormous. I'm giving it house porn. You know what? I agree. That wall of windows in her bedroom is amazing. I think that the film doesn't understand how Mm -mm. cool Aunt Heidi's house is, though. And so I stand (laughs) by the points I made about it previously. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So that actually does give us a line. Down the middle. <laughs> uh, okay, so Brenna, this was a slightly frustrating conversation about adaptations, but I'm very happy that we ended up reading the book. I am too, and I'm happy that you had this really good experience of a middle grade novel. Mm-hmm. Because we're going to read another middle grade novel that would benefit from you coming into it with some goodwill. okay yes next week we are up to our band book club yeah we're going to be talking about george slash melissa this is the month of the publication of the melissa version of this book Mm -hmm. so we'll talk a lot about what's in a title why it matters um and we'll talk a lot about actually a lot of the issues we've talked about today right like this is going to tie directly into the don't say gay bill it's going to tie directly into um what we are and are not willing to let middle grade kids learn and Mm -hmm. see reflected of their own experiences so i think it'll be a good conversation yeah i'm actually really excited and feeling slightly trepidatious because i know just how challenged and banned this book is and i feel like i'm gonna go into this enjoying the book and then feeling ready for a fight when you and i (laughs) actually have to record because i'm just gonna be so mad at the state of the world It's been a long time since I've read this one, but I remember feeling fiercely protective of the protagonist. So yeah, probably. (laughs) Okay. Well, folks, if you want to get in on this conversation, you have one day as of the release of this episode. So if you want to let us know your thoughts on George slash Melissa, you have until April 19th to do so. And it's a quick read. So even with one day, I think you could still do it. I believe in you. Mm -hmm. Okay. How Mm -hmm. would they do so, Brenna? So to get in touch with us with anything long form, it's hkhspod at gmail.com. We love your book club emails, so please keep them coming. 
Mm-hmm. If you've got shorter thoughts you just want to share with us so that we can include them in the episode and you don't feel like sending an email, well, find us on the Twitters. That's at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. Mm-hmm. Joe, if they're looking for you because they want to share a better Lisa Kudrow role, where would they find you? <laughs> I will gladly take that. Yes. Uh, if you want to come and talk to me, you can do so at B Stole My Remote. And that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad we read this book. I think it's a good prelude to George. And if you are reading ahead, our next full-length episode after George slash Melissa is going to be Derby Girl. Derby Girl? No, just Derby Girl. (laughs) Derby Girl. Derby Girl singular. Whip It is the movie. There we go. I think I yeah. just got so used to talking Whip It because that was easier. But yes, mm-hmm. it is uh, Shauna Cross, Derby Girl, and or Drew Barrymore's Whip It. We've already recorded this episode. And honestly, the movie is such a blast. It's just like a spark of life. It really is. And Joe, don't worry about the title because you got it better late than never. Uh. Uh-huh. Uh, All right, take us uh, take us to the outro, brother. All right, uh, until next time, me and my puns will see you on the page, <laughs> and I will be avoiding you on the Disney screen. <laughs> bye bye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think a large part of that has to do with Nate's uh, not always great casting. No. Yeah, I mean, I can understand it from a sort of believability function. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll do it as a, a bit of a follow-up, and yeah, I've got nothing else to add to that, so maybe I'll just do that again.